welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Today is Friday, May 29th, and we are beginning to see some loosening of the lockdown procedures here in California, and that is making me very happy, and that includes being able to go back to church, modified conditions, and obviously distancing probably on June the 7th. So I'm feeling a little bit more perky than I have felt in some of the past episodes. Speaking of past episodes, I had mentioned someone I went back to during the time when I had a lot of opportunity for reading, and that was Flannery O'Connor. I am pleased to report that a friend of mine who listened to an earlier episode has become a fan of Flannery's as a result of my mentioning of her and her literature. A little bit about Flannery. Actually, she was born Mary Flannery O'Connor in 1925, the only daughter of Edward and Regina O'Connor. Unfortunately, Flannery's father died very young of a terrible disease called lupus, which would also ultimately take Flannery's life in 1964 at the very young age of 39. But by then she had become something of a force of nature in writing. The idiom of her writing was the Deep South, for she was in Georgia in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, which was a time of great turmoil and change and a recognition of the moral failures of racism. She wrote about what she knew, the interactions between white and black people in that place and time. This has made it very controversial these days, and I would expect that, unlike when I was going to school in the 60s and 70s, she is not read quite as much because she used language of the time and place which is not acceptable today. And her reasoning was to show how things were at that time and the frailty of those people of that time, both white and black. I don't know if she feels this way today, but Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple, wrote about O'Connor. Essential O'Connor is not about race at all, which is why it is so refreshing, coming as it does out of such a racial culture if it can be seen to be about anything, then it's about prophets and prophecy, about revelation, and about the impact of supernatural grace on human beings who don't have a chance of spiritual growth without it. The story I want to talk about today is probably the first iteration of her theology. She probably wouldn't like me saying that because she didn't want to be so closely identified with Catholicism as a writer in sort of that treacly, I'm a Catholic writer, something pious. She didn't particularly like that kind of writing. I suppose she wanted to affect a Catholic sensibility, but wanted it to be available to everyone because grace is available to everyone. That is true whether you're Catholic or not. And the other thing about grace is that very often we either don't see it being offered, and even if we see it being offered, we just outrightly reject it. That was the thing about the O'Connor stories I had a problem with, is that the context, the, the, the stories themselves, were often very ugly. 
grotesque is a word that is used most often to describe the way O'Connor wrote. And it's hard to believe because she was this sort of demure-looking woman who, as she got older, was also very frail on her crutches. The liveliness she could not have in her physical life she had on the paper, on the page. And add to that the toughness of spirit. If you believe in the fall, that is, Adam and Eve, who stand for all of humanity, disobeying God by grasping at being God themselves, then you understand that all of the things around us, the disorder that we see, and during this particular time, we're seeing an enormous amount of disorder, and we always have seen disorder, even though you and I were not alive for it. Flannery's characters, like we are, are living in that disorder. And it's in that disorder that grace is offered. And so, of course, we can't see it so easily. And I guess it's arguably reasonable that we don't always accept it. I don't know if God feels that way, but I can understand why we don't always accept it, why I don't always accept it. I guess from my point of view, this first story of O'Connor's is relatively benign in terms of the level of the grotesque. There really isn't any in here. It's a rather straightforward story. It isn't like A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is a later story where basically everybody in the whole story dies and you say to yourself, okay, what good has come out of this? The Dorinium begins in New York and then sort of toggles to the South where a character named Old Dudley, a white man, is now living with his daughter in New York. And he's not happy in New York. He feels confined in New York. And he's regretting that he even went to New York at a moment when both he and his daughter had a sort of weakness of a sensibility in her case of duty and his that, oh, maybe it would be okay if I live in New York. But he's constrained in New York. And he thinks back to the time when he lived in a boarding house after his wife died with a bunch of other old ladies. And downstairs, the people who took care of the property were two black people, Letitia and Raby. The only sign of life in New York is across the window of a kind of an alley where you're surrounded by buildings, so there's no view. So the only sign of life is this potted geranium in a window. And from old Dudley's point of view, it isn't much of a geranium, certainly not the kind that could have been cultivated near the boarding house in the South. But that geranium seems to be the only spark of emotional existence for him. And interestingly, when he was living in the South in that boarding house, the main source of energy and life for him seems to have been the two black people that he would go out possum hunting or fishing with. And this despite the fact that he felt superior to these people because of the nature of the cultural failure. When I read Flannery's description of the apartment building that old Dudley is living in in New York, I can resonate with it. Let me read a piece of it. 
New York was swishing and jamming one minute, and dirty and dead the next. His daughter didn't even live in a house. She lived in a building, the middle in a row of buildings all alike, all black and red and gray, with rat-mouthed people hanging out their windows, looking at other windows, and other people, just like them, looking back. Inside, you could go up, and you could go down, and there were just halls that reminded you of tape measures strung out with a door at every inch. He remembered he'd been dazed by the building the first week. He'd wake up expecting the halls to have changed in the night, and he'd look out the door, and there were stretch-like dog runs. The streets were the same way. He wondered where he'd be if he walked to the end of one of them. One night he dreamed, he did, and ended at the end of the building nowhere. When I was growing up in the Bronx, I lived in two buildings kind of like that. The first was a tenement of sorts, which was split in three, three separate buildings tied together. And in the front of that building, you'd always see people hanging out, particularly the older people who would scream at the kids not to play ball near their windows. And then in the back, we were facing another building and there was an alleyway between us and you would only hear sounds and occasionally you'd see somebody trying to peek out. But it was very tight and cramped and not very pretty. And let me add, very gray. One of the things that I needed to get away from when I finally moved to California was the sense of the grayness of New York. Now, I'm not being entirely fair. Maybe I was just seeking some kind of change. Probably I was. I was a kid, uh, a young adult. So in a way, what you notice about old Dudley is that he's pining for the life that he had in um, the South with these two black people or three black people that he knew that he felt superior to but had a close and warm relationship with. It's a very contradictory attitude. I suppose you could say that in the South when he lived there, even in that little boarding house, he was a big man compared to these black people that he associated with with great affection, but that he felt better than. The way I see it, that geranium is the only connection to that time and place that gives him a sense of self, possession, superiority, uh, a mastery of life and of other people. In New York, no one is a master of another. At least that's the way old Dudley sees it. And he may not like it. He doesn't like it because it doesn't give him any sense of, of his superiority and self. Perhaps in his own way, he wants to lord it over another human being. And coming from the South, a culture from all through the Civil War, before the Civil War, up to the Civil Rights Movement, past the Civil Rights Movement, he felt that he was in control, that he was the most important, that he could determine other people's fates. Even in fact, he wasn't able to do it. He is a man like all of us who seeks power over others and wants to enforce his will on others and is unhappy when he doesn't have the ability to do that. I think we can safely say that that attitude is sinful. It is the sin from which God tried to redeem us, or he has redeemed us, but that we still fight in an effort to grab power and to be gods ourselves. 
So old Dudley, already unhappy with his existence in this apartment building, finds out that a black man is moving into or has moved into number 10, three floors down. One day, old Dudley ventures out and starts to go down the stairs. And he's thinking of a time when he was hunting with uh, Raby. And he's pretending almost to have a gun in his hand when he runs into the black man from number 10. Now I'm gonna read part of what happens and I'm gonna leave out the word that is used in this story to denote the black man. I'm gonna use the phrase black man. Old Dudley felt like a child with a prop pistol. His mouth was open and his tongue was rigid in the middle of it. Right below his knees felt hollow. His feet slipped and he slid three steps and landed sitting down. You better be careful, the Negro said. You could easily hurt yourself on these steps. And he held out his hand for old Dudley to pull up on. It was a long, narrow hand and the tips of the fingernails were clean and cut squarely. They looked like they might have been filed. Old Dudley's hands hung between his knees. The black man took him by the arm and pulled up. He gasped, you're heavy. Give a little help here. Old Dudley's knees unbended and he staggered up. The black man had him by the arm. I'm going up anyway, he said. I'll help you. Old Dudley looked frantically around. The steps behind him seemed to close up. He was walking with the black man up the stairs. The black man was waiting for him on each step. So you hunt, the black man was saying. Well, let's see. I went deer hunting once. I believe we used a Dodson 38 to get those deer. What do you use? Old Dudley was staring through the shiny tan shoes. I use a gun, he mumbled. I like to fool with guns better than hunting, the black man was saying. Never was much at killing anything. Seems kind of a shame to deplete the game reserve. I'd collect guns if I had the time and the money, though. He was waiting on every step till old Dudley got on it. He was explaining guns and makes. He had on gray socks with a black fleck in them. They finished the stairs. The black man walked down the hall with him, holding him by the arm. It probably looked like he had his arm locked in the black man's. They went right up to old Dudley's door. Then the black man asked, You from around here? Old Dudley shook his head, looking at the door. He hadn't looked at the black man yet. All the way up the stairs, he hadn't looked at him. Well, the black man said, it's a swell place once you get used to it. He patted old Dudley on the back and went into his own apartment. Old Dudley went into his. The pain in his throat was all over his face now, leaking out his eyes. He shuffled to the chair by the window and sank down in it. His throat was going to pop. His throat was going to pop on account of a black man, a damn black man that patted him on the back and called him old-timer, him that knew such as that couldn't be, him that had come from a good place, a good place, a place where such as that couldn't be. His eyes felt strange in their sockets. They were swelling in them, and in the minute there wouldn't be any room left for them there. He was trapped in this place where black men could call you old-timer, he wouldn't be trapped. He wouldn't be. He rolled his head in the back of the chair to stretch his neck that was too full. So here's the thing. As he looks out the window, where the geranium usually is, it's gone. A man is standing in the window. The geranium is gone, and old Dudley starts to cry.
Dudley's focus now was on that alone. It had fallen out the window. Well, why hadn't it been picked up? The man in the window across the way can't figure out why it's any of old Dudley's business, but suggests that if old Dudley wants it, he should go pick it up. At first, old Dudley thinks that yes, he'll go back down those stairs and he'll go get that geranium that he likes so much. But then he realizes that he might meet the black man again. Here's how Flannery puts it. He wouldn't go down and have black men patting him on the back. He went back to the room and the window and looked down at the geranium. The man across the way says, I seen you before. I seen you setting in that old chair every day, staring out the window, looking in my apartment. What I do in my apartment is my business, see? I don't like people looking at what I do. It was at the bottom of the alley with its roots in the air. I only tell people once, the man said, and left the window. I think people today, in their understandable resistance to the moral failures of the past, but with an unrecognition that we still have moral failures today, tend to think or misread the geranium as approving of old Dudley's racism. For that matter, I think they may misread all of Flannery O'Connor's stories because of its being in that milieu as somehow approving of racism. But in fact, it is a dialectic between or among what is considered normal by human beings and what is truly ugly or grotesque. It is old Dudley living where he is now and given his racism, which then he, he considered normal and was perhaps considered normal by others, who was cramped and diseased then, like the geranium at the bottom of the alley, is, is broken. He doesn't want to change, even as he is touched by the grace of God through the black man who tries to help him in deep kindness. Old Dudley had a chance at accepting redemption and threw it away. In this reactive culture in which we find ourselves, how often in our interrelationships are we throwing grace away in our anger and cruelty and need to prove that we are the ones in power? Why am I juxtaposing Flannery's prayer journal against this particular story? Part of the reason is that she wrote the story around someplace around between 46 and 48 and the prayer journal was someplace written between 46 and 47 when she was about 21 years old and in Iowa. So the two things were written in generally the same period of time. And I think they give an insight into her depth, into Flannery's intention in her writing. This is one of the first entries in the book or part thereof. Flannery writes, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. The crescent is very beautiful, and perhaps that is all one like I am, should, or could see. But what I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. 
I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Please help me to push myself aside. Now, there's no specific mention of God in the geranium, but he permeates the whole thing. In the prayer, she talks about being in the way and that she may focus instead on the shadow, instead and on the light that is Christ. And old Dudley is in his own way. He has an opportunity for the light, and he either cannot see it or his pride, the pride we all share that got us into trouble in the first place, is blocking his view. Redemption has been accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's out there for the taking. It's a gift to us that we ought not slap away. In another prayer, Flannery writes, My dear God, I am impressed with how much I have to be thankful for in a material sense. In a spiritual sense, I have the opportunity of being even more fortunate. But it seems apparent to me that I am not translating this opportunity into fact. You say, dear God, to ask for grace, and it will be given. I ask for it. I realize that there is more to it than that, that I have to behave like I want it. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father. Please help me to know the will of my Father. Not a scrupulous nervousness, nor yet a lax presumption, but a clear, reasonable knowledge. And after this, give me a strong will to be able to bend it to the will of the Father. You could say that old Dudley in the geranium hadn't gotten to the point that we're discussing. He's probably not thinking about any of this, but that's what... Flannery is doing for us. She's positing old Dudley's situation and saying to us, consider the operation of grace in your life, especially when it seems like it's not there, and look for it and possibly with 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 a sense of humility accept it. I don't know if C.S. Lewis actually said this or it was just in the movie Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins. But at one point, Lewis talks about suffering being a megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. You know, Dudley's suffering in that apartment in New York, in his background of self-satisfied racism, for Flannery trying to deal with her suffering with her lupus, with you and me dealing with whatever our sufferings are, we are being invited to accept grace and to get out of the way and have God come into our lives. I surely won't pretend that it's easy. I am deeply aware of my own resistance to grace. Reading Flannery's prayer journal makes me feel a little better because I see a fellow traveler in the struggle for faith and she, such an important writer. Here's part of an entry. The summer was very arid spiritually, and up here, getting to go to Mass again every day has left me unmoved. Thoughts awful in their pettiness and selfishness come into my mind, even with the host on my tongue. Maybe the Lord had pity on me and sent me wandering down the stacks to pick up Flegger on Bloy and Peggy and some others. It is terrible to think of my unconsciousness when I really know. Too weak to pray for suffering, too weak even to get out of prayer for anything except much trifles. I don't want to be doomed to mediocrity in my feeling for Christ. 
I want to feel. I want to love. Take me, dear Lord, and set me in the direction I am to go. My Lady of Perpetual Health, pray for me. Yesterday I was at a meeting at my church office, properly distanced, about uh, the things that need to be done within the church physical property to make sure of physical distancy and protection for health purposes. And I had noticed that the picture of the crucified Christ that was above the secretary desk and had been for years, probably two pastors back and our current pastor who has been there three years, was gone. And in place of that picture was a clock. I have been a volunteer substitute secretary at the parish on and off for quite a few years. And when I first saw this particular picture, and I'm not sure who the artist was, it's not the Dali uh, Christ crucified, but it's a very dramatic picture. And frankly, any picture, any representation of Christ on the cross is dramatic and it's scary. Of course, it is the very centrality of our face, coupled with the resurrection, which conquers the death on the cross. Nonetheless, it took me a long time to become used to it when I would sit in the office and be working. I suddenly became interested in finding out what happened to it, and if this was a matter of some kind of redecorating of the parish office, I was hoping that maybe our pastor would be willing to let go of it and let me have it. So why am I telling you all of this? I was attempting to put up the picture in one space on my wall that I still have left that doesn't have something on it. I am a person with mood swings and during this time of the pandemic, like most people, I have had my emotions at the surface. When I get that way, anything can trigger me and I regret to say that the odd curse word will come out. Okay, let me be honest. It's not the odd curse word. It's a string of curse words. I suppose the only saving grace is that I don't tend to curse ever in public. Once, maybe in a blue moon. So my private cursing is depressing enough. And it's even more depressing that here I am trying to put a picture up of the crucified Christ and I'm cursing while I'm doing it. I will be having to go to confession about that when confession begins again. But even here, Flannery has some guidance. She often would talk somewhat cryptically about being overeating, although she was very thin, and her thoughts being away from God. And in fact, that's what she says here in this last entry in the prayer journal of uh, September 26th. And I want to say it was between, again, 1946 and 1947. So it's probably September 26th, 1947. And she says, My thoughts are so far away from God. He might as well not have made me. And the feeling I egg up writing here lasts approximately a half hour and seems a sham. I don't want any of this artificial, superficial feeling stimulated by the choir. Today, I have proved myself a glutton for scotch, oatmeal cookies, and erotic thought. There is nothing left to say of me. Flannery O'Connor may not be a saint officially, and she may never be publicly named a saint because of the time in which she wrote and the nature of what she wrote and our modern sensibilities of what she wrote or about what she wrote. But for me, she is a model. 
She's a model of a real human being who struggled with life, struggled with illness, struggled with her psychological difficulties, struggled with everything the rest of us struggle with, and still fought to be faithful to God. So with that, I say good night.